And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm Adam, and I am the director of 5th through 12th grade ministry and the co-director of the Emerging Leaders Program here at Lakeland. And very excited to be back with you again this week for uh, Sermon 2. Last week we began a four-part series in the book of Jonah. And we got almost all the way through chapter 1. As I mentioned in pastoral announcements last week, I actually cut off the last verse from chapter 1 and I moved it to this week because it really makes more sense with the story, um, as, as you probably saw as it was read this morning. Now, hopefully that didn't feel like we were avoiding the hundred-ton elephant in the room, or perhaps a whale, um, because most people, when they have questions about Jonah, the question that first comes to mind is this one. Is this story really true? Can we believe that there was really a guy who got swallowed by a whale, lived in there for three days, and survived? How are we supposed to be reading this story? Now, what we're really dealing with here when we ask this sort of question is an issue of literary genre. We're asking, what was the intention what did the, how did the author intend us to read this story? Do we believe that the narrative is intended to be historical? The true story of a prophet and his real-life adventures? Or was it intended to be symbolic? Like the parables of Jesus, for example. Where there is a vivid story that, that gives us an underlying important truth. So, in order to answer this question, I decided to start out by uh, looking at some really smart people and what they've decided about this issue. So, I went and found some really trustworthy, Bible-believing scholars and said, how do they treat this story? And what I found was that among scholars, there is no consensus. Many scholars tend to lean toward reading this as history— Many scholars lean toward reading it as parable. And some even say there's not enough evidence one side or the other for me to even have a leaning on this. They make, they make no stand on it at all. So 
that wasn't quite as helpful as I had hoped. So I think the next step that would be maybe more helpful to us is for me to give you just a little bit of the evidence on both sides, and then we can decide what we think. So let's start with evidence that this was intended to be read as a historical account. Well, first of all, we do know from the book of 2 Kings, which is definitely a historical book. We know that for certainty. So in 2 Kings, we know that Jonah was actually a real person and a real prophet, uh, serving under Jeroboam II, king of Israel. Second, the writing style, the form, how this is actually written in many ways more closely resembles that of history books in the Bible than it does things that we know for sure to be parables in Scripture. Let me give you um, a couple of examples. One would be that it's four chapters long. It's four chapters worth of story, and that is much, much longer than any clear parable that we see in Scripture. Second, some passages within this book are clearly, clearly trying to show us or reflect the type of language that is used in other historical books. For example, chapter 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That is exactly the way that almost every single call by God to a prophet type story in the history books of the Old Testament, that's the way that it go, right? It's clearly pointing us toward those types of accounts in history books. Now, how about for some evidence that it could be intended to be read as a parable? Well, first of all, the rest of this world that's painted for us within this story, outside of Jonah himself, is left very, very vague, right? We don't get the names of other characters. We don't get uh, to look at their heart or what their motivations, why they're doing what they're doing. Everything outside of Jonah is super vague in the story. Additionally, this book is an absolute masterpiece of literature. I mean, it is really, really a well-told story. Utilizing foreshadowing, lots of irony, double meanings, It seems to be carefully and artfully constructed to tell a great story. So we could say that seems to be its primary purpose is to tell a great story as opposed to trying to relay for us facts and historical information. So after that, what do you think? It's complicated, right? It's easy to see why scholars are split on this issue. Now, I know what you might be thinking at this point. Why are you asking us? You're the preacher, preacher. You tell us. (sighs) Fine. If you're going to push me on this one, then I will tell you that I personally tend to read this book as historical. However, it's not a strong leaning, right? I see the evidence on both sides of this. And for me, my reasoning for doing this, my reasoning for reading it as historical, actually has nothing to do with my feeling that the evidence that we just presented is 
strongly in favor of one side or the other. My reason for doing it actually won't be fully revealed until the very, very end of this sermon series. Sorry, I really like cliffhangers. I don't know if you, if you guys have already noticed that in my first like, sermon in a quarter or whatever, but I really do like cliffhangers. Here's another important point. Reading this book as historical or reading it as parable does not actually give us a drastically different purpose for the story, nor does it give us drastically different takeaways uh, in this story. So I'm not saying this is true for every book in the Bible, but for this one, I actually think you could go either direction and end up in the same place at the end. However, notice what I did not include as a good reason to doubt the historical nature of this story. That there is something so outlandish and so preposterous in this story as a person being swallowed whole by a whale, surviving in there for three days, and then being cast back out onto the shore. Now I get it. That does sound super outrageous. So why is it not a good reason to doubt that the story is true? Because how we deal with this specific question reflects what we believe about the existence and the possibility of miracles at all. Pastor Dan has spent some time over the past couple of years giving us little bits of insight into a really impactful book by a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. And his book is called A Secular Age. Now, one of Taylor's many claims in this book is that in our culture today, all belief is challenged. For many people today, the idea of a transcendent God who rises above mere natural causes in the world is fading or lost altogether. This affects how we interpret the world around us. And it affects how we interpret our own scriptures. We live in a world that is growing more and more dubious of the supernatural, of any explanation that goes beyond the scope of what science can verify. Even Christians are affected by this, as the way the world is constantly framed by the voices around us absolutely affects and influences the way that we see it ourselves. However, it is incredibly important that we realize and understand that as Christians, we believe in miracles. Miracles are an absolute pillar of our faith. They're not only possible, they are necessary for our spiritual and eternal livelihoods. We believe that the God of heaven, almighty creator of the universe, came to earth to be physically near his creation through the person of Jesus. We believe that Jesus walked around healing people of all sorts of ailments and disease and performing all sorts of miracles during his earthly ministry. We believe that after being killed on a cross, Jesus was resurrected to new life, defeating sin and death, and making that victory available to all of God's children. 
And we believe that after Jesus ascended back to the right hand of God and his presence left this world, we were given the presence of the Holy Spirit, which can and does live in the hearts of all who accept this gift and guides us and speaks to us as the very voice of God. Perhaps Christians should give non-Christians a little bit more grace on this issue, as I think it can be very easy for us to underestimate just how fantastical our beliefs actually sound to those who don't believe. But at the same time, let's also be crystal clear about where the secular scientific age often gets it wrong. A rejection of miracles based on their unlikeliness is a presupposition, not a scientific conclusion. It's a bias. It's an opinion that cannot be tested by scientific method. And it's actually circular reasoning. Stay with me here for a second. If I say, I believe that no supernatural cause exists for this specific event because over time we have come to believe that no supernatural causes exist for anything, that's circular reasoning. Can you see that? It just goes around over and over in a circle around itself. It is impossible to remove faith from any worldview. And it's impossible to actually remove the need for meaning and beauty within the human psyche. We all still desperately need beauty and meaning in our lives. Yet we live in a world where more and more people believe that God is no longer speaking and entering the world and causing the miraculous in our midst. I urge all of us this morning to resist this trend in the world. I urge us all to recognize that believing in miracles opens the door to a more beautifully compelling and mysterious world and to a more hopeful one. Jesus did not come to perform his earthly miracles just to show us that he could do it, but to show us a glimpse of the kingdom to come, to help us understand what is in store for the entire world and for us as God's children. The end of disease and sickness, the end of oppression and hatred, the end of war and fighting and death, all replaced by healing and restoration and love. This is the heart and will of God for the entire universe. And it is wonderful and hopeful and something absolutely everyone in the world should be excited to be a part of. We all find our meaning in something in this world. And I really dare someone to prove to me that there's something more beautiful and more hopeful than that. So, after all of that, the conclusion this morning is this. 
Maybe Jonah is meant to be read historically. Maybe Jonah is meant to be read as a parable. But let's not dismiss the possibility of God actively working in this world in a miraculous manner. Because that's not crazy. It's hopeful and joyful. The most hopeful, joyful thing we could believe. So with that, let's take a look at what's going on here in chapter 2. I think this is a good segue for us because what we find here at the start of chapter 2 is something very miraculous and intense indeed. Now when we left Jonah last week, he had been cast into the sea by the sailors, right? And he's splashing around, floundering out in the water. And now, as we meet Jonah here at the start of this week's sermon, we find him swallowed whole by some sea creature and plummeted down into the depths of the sea. Now, you will notice I called it a sea creature. Um, Most assume that this was a whale. Um, That's probably when you see people translate this. Sometimes you'll see them translated as whale. Our translation this morning actually left it as a great fish. And there's a good reason for that. Because in the Hebrew, in the original language it was written, they didn't even have different names for different kinds of sea creatures. They just called everything a fish. Like It's all fish. Yeah, this was a big one. That's a big fish that got him. Right? So we don't know that it's a whale, but it makes sense, right? I mean, whales are the biggest creatures that we know of in the sea. The first half of the book of Jonah is a slow, steady, downward descent. We see this in the language that's used, right? Think back to last chapter. Think back to what we studied last week in chapter 1. We found that it said, Jonah went down to the port of Joppa, right? It used that word down. Then it says, he went down into a ship. Then it says, he went down. He went to, to sleep down in the hold of the ship. And now we find it going the furthest of all. Uh that he's taken down into the very depths of the sea. This is brilliant storytelling. This is really, really amazing literature. It paints a clear and vivid picture of how Jonah's life is currently going, doesn't it? Down, down, down. Jonah's disobedience has led to detachment on his part and disunion with God. This has led him to apathy. Remember back to last week, right, when he's asleep in the ship while this crazy storm that he already knows is God, right, is bringing down, he's like, I'm just going to sleep, right, complete apathy. This has led him to a complete loss of hope. Think about what he says to the sailors at the end of last chapter. I don't know, just cast me into the sea. Just do what you got to do. Right, he's given up. We can sense the disheartened despair on Jonah's part. And then we get our next unexpected event in a book that is full of them. From this place of hopelessness and despair, from within the belly of a giant whale that has seemingly just attempted to eat him, Jonah prays. We would expect to see a prayer of lamentation here, right? A crying out to God in utter sorrow as he looks back on his life and the events that led him up to this bleak, bleak moment. 
Only that's not what we get at all. We get a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. And it's a remarkable prayer. It's hopeful, thankful, beautifully poetic. You see, Jonah realized that being swallowed by this whale was not punishment. It was not wrathful or vengeful on God's part. It was an act of pure and total mercy. Jonah does not need saving from the whale because he realizes he's already been saved by the whale. Last week we mentioned that God never claimed in chapter 1 that Jonah's life was required to pay the price for his disobedience. And here God shows us that is true. God comes and pulls him out of certain death, saves his life after he had been cast into the sea. Now, in the time we have left this morning, I want to finish up by pointing out two important things, two important things about Jonah's prayer here. And then I want to outline how everything that we discuss this morning all fits together and why it desperately, desperately matters for us. So we still have a lot of good, solid work to do. So let's get going on that. The first important thing about Jonah's prayer, God himself supplied the beautiful, wonderful, hopeful words of Jonah's prayer. What do I mean by that? Well, this is something really cool and really interesting. But Jonah's prayer didn't just come out of nowhere here. Jonah's prayer and and specific lines within the prayer absolutely parallel lines from Psalms in the Bible. I have a little chart up here that we can sort of take at least the first couple of verses and sort of parse this out so we can see what's going on. Um, Jonah, in verse 2, starts his prayer out by saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Sounds very similar to Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Then Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Psalm 88, 6. Sounds very similar. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Jonah says, in verse, at the end of verse 3, All your waves and billows have passed over me. Psalm 42, 7, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Jonah finishes here. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Just like Psalm 31, 22, I am cut off from your sight. Now we could keep going and going. We could go all the way through the entire uh, prayer of Jonah. Probably would be boring to do that. So I cut it off here because we get the point, right? Jonah is using the words of God from the Psalms to create his prayer here. Now, this is a really important use of Scripture. Um, Jonah knew these hopeful words of God, and he had them so ingrained deep down within his being that they couldn't help but rise up within him and come out of him in this time of trouble, in this dark, despairing moment. Second important thing about Jonah's prayer. The journey of life is not a constant straight line up 
and to the right, constantly taking us higher and higher with only great joy and peace and hope to come without any sort of downturn, right? This isn't how how life works. Rather, the way up is often to first go down. We are often brought into our greatest triumphs and our greatest experiences of joy when we first plumb the depths of our suffering. Why is this true? It's a matter of human nature. I have to say that for years and years and years, I never really understood the Beatitudes. You know what the Beatitudes are? It's a series of teachings of Jesus from the Gospels where he says things such as, Blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when I read that, I always really struggled with it. I said, okay, what is Jesus even up to here? Is he saying, I'm going to sort out every person by just how pitiful they are, and the most pitiful ones will get to experience heaven first or something, right? Seems weird. But then I realized several years ago that I had a causation and correlation problem with the Beatitudes. You see, it's not this lowliness and being poor in spirit that's a virtue in and of itself. That's not what this means. It means rather that the poor in spirit are blessed because they are in a place where they can finally, finally look for God where they can actually notice him working in their lives, and perhaps most of all, where they are willing to accept what he is constantly offering all of us. Love, forgiveness, rescue. We live in a time and place marked by radical, radical comfort. And I can tell you that in my own personal experience, comfort is the enemy of spirituality. Comfort is the enemy of a real relationship with God. And unfortunately, this is just part of our humanness, I believe, being brought to a place where our spirits are poor, where we are experiencing pain and sorrow, actually make us more likely to see God and know that we need him. When I first created this message, I have to tell you guys this, I have to pull back the curtain a little bit on something. When I first created this message, I actually worried a little bit that the first half of the message, talking about the genre and whether or not God comes in our midst to perform miracles and such, that it didn't really fit well, didn't really connect well with the second half of the message, talking about Jonah praying from within the belly of the whale. But then, it was, it was even just this week, I had this amazing revelatory moment from God where I saw it connects. This actually connects really, really well in a really, really important way. How we look for God, how we assess His place in our story 
will absolutely affect whether or not we will recognize him when he does show up and attempt to do something miraculous in our story. And it will affect how we respond to him. It will affect how we pray from the depths of our own seas. With everything that Jonah had been through at this part of the story, I think it's safe to say that Jonah had experienced his own personal version of hell. But Jonah now realized that God had planned to save him from this hell all along. God was not going to leave Jonah in these brutal circumstances he had created for himself, but was instead going to pursue Jonah to the very ends of the earth, all the way even to Tarshish, and would pull him back to shore in whatever means necessary, even by vomiting him out of a whale. Whatever pain and suffering you might be feeling today, know that God is with you. Whatever you may have experienced in the past that you are still dealing with, that you are still processing, know that God has been with you and still is. And whatever pain you might yet experience someday, and let's not fool ourselves into thinking that there won't be any, God will be with you. And he's not just with you as a companion, watching you struggle with pain. God has gone before us into the depths of the sea. Some versions of the Apostles' Creed tell us that Jesus descended into hell itself upon his death. Not just so that he would know how we feel, although that's part of it, but in order to defeat it from the inside. To absolutely destroy sin and death once and for all so they would no longer need to be feared at all. In the movie The Matrix, yep, I'm going to The Matrix, it's true. There's a really interesting scene at the end where Neo, who's the main character, is facing off against a computer program named Agent Smith, who's the main villain. And Neo literally goes running and diving into Agent Smith, right? And the viewer sees him completely disappear inside of him. And Agent Smith is like super confused, like looking around like, what just happened? And then Neo comes bursting out from inside of Agent Smith, completely exploding and destroying him. This is what Jesus has done to sin and death. He experienced it first. He literally dove into them to sin and death on the cross. And then he was resurrected, bursting out from the inside, destroying them and their power over us forever. And because of what Jesus has done to sin and death, 
even in the midst of our trials, we can be hopeful and joyful that we are the beloved children of the Most High God, the creator of the entire universe. We too can sing a song of praise from within the belly of the whale at the bottom of life's ocean. Because we know our story doesn't end there. It ends in redemption and forgiveness, in restoration and newness of life. It ends in the destruction of all things evil and all things hopeless and all things sad. It ends in reconciliation and the loving embrace of the one who loves us most. Now, Jonah obviously couldn't have known about Jesus Right, So many hundreds of years before Jesus would even come to be born on this earth. Or could he? Jonah knew how it felt to be saved from impending doom. He knew how it felt to receive an incredible gift that he absolutely did not deserve. And he knew that God had saved him and brought him nearest when he was in his time of most pain and suffering. I'd say Jonah received a picture of Jesus after all. And so too have we. And it is a beautiful, wonderful, hopeful picture indeed. Amen? We're now going to get a chance to respond to this wonderful, hopeful picture through the sacrament of the Lord's table. Uh, If you're someone who has listened to this message and you say, that sounds great, I'm with you, but I'm still not sure I'm all the way there. I'm not sure I all the way believe that that Jesus is this answer. That's okay. Please take this time, and I would would urge you to use the time to, to ask yourself, what would it look like? What would it look like to believe this in my own life? What could that do for me? But for those of us who do believe, this is a joyful time. This is a a time for us to pour out in thanksgiving uh, the wonderful truth that God has promised us in his word. So let's come together and and partake in this bread and in this cup uh, with joy and thanksgiving this morning. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And not just the Lord's death, right? But his life, his resurrection that has made that possible for us too. That's the joy this morning. Amen.